You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Frank. Hello. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm bracing for the storm. Well, I'm witnessing the storm, and uh, at the risk of uh, spoiling the plot, there's a lot of whiteness associated with it uh, as I look around. And, yeah, yeah. And there's depth to the whiteness. Um, so, uh, there's a big, this will, this will, uh, post not immediately after we record it. So just to explain to people what's going on, there's a huge snowstorm afflicting the East coast. Um, so, uh, let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is a Wright show available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're Frank Wilczek, very well-known physicist, Nobel laureate, uh, And the um, author most recently of a book called Fundamentals, Ten Keys to Reality. That's what we're going to talk about. You've written other books, A Beautiful Question, The Lightness of Being. Um, uh, I'm really, really excited about this conversation. There's a lot of deep stuff we can talk about uh, uh, and stay within the confines of your book. Before we start, I I would like to ask – if you want to try to describe uh, – if there's a way of describing to people like me who are not well-grounded in physics, what you won your Nobel Prize for, Wikipedia says it was for the discovery of asymptotic freedom uh, in the theory right. of the strong interaction. If you're at a cocktail party and you're talking to non-physicists and they say, oh, you won a Nobel Prize, what did you win it for? What's, is there a short answer that's intelligible? Yeah, that uh, that what you quoted was the citation, but the the, the there's a very uh, simple 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 answer that that uh, is more striking. I think there are four fundamental forces of nature as we presently understand it. There's gravity and electromagnetism, which have been known for a long time, and then uh, the strong and weak forces, which people discovered only in the 20th century when they looked inside atoms. But they're uh, what are responsible for holding protons and neutrons together to make atomic nuclei for how stars burn and a lot of important things in the world. And in any case, they're part of describing the world, these two new forces. And the strong force uh, really rose to the top of the agenda of physics over the 20th century. What, what, is, what are the equations for this force? And uh, we found the equations <laughs> and we f- most important, we found we found uh, and they're very nice equations. They've had a lot of applications within physics. And I think equally important to guessing the equations is we uh, developed techniques that allow them to be used. And uh, well, at first tested and now used for purposes of understanding high energy reactions or and cosmology and unification and lots of things within the physics world. Okay. Well, on behalf of humankind, I thank you. I'm glad, glad we have those at our disposal. Uh, the, uh, so your, your, your book, and we should say you're at, I, I don't know if I remember to say you're at, you're at MIT. That's your main affiliation. You have others, uh, like yes. Arizona state and so on, but you've long been a, a professor of physics at MIT. Um, yes, twenty years now. Uh, and you've uh, you've you've, as I said, you've written written books before. Uh, this one is definitely for a popular audience. Let me um, let me read the chapters because these are the ten keys to reality promised in in the <laughs> subtitle, yeah. and they don't take long. He, here mm-hmm. they are. There's plenty of space. 
There's plenty of time. That's two. There are very few ingredients. There are very few laws. There's plenty of matter and energy. Now, that's part one of the book. Uh, the, the next five are in part two. Cosmic history is an open book. Complexity emerges. There's plenty more to see. Mysteries remain. Complementarity is mind expanding. Now, I want to spend most of this conversation, I think, on the second half of the book. In those last two uh, chapters in particular, you talk about things like the relationship of mind to matter, uh, the concept of complementarity in quantum physics, and I'm endlessly fascinated by quantum physics. <laughs> Uh, and endlessly unable to, to comprehend it. Um, you talk <laughs> yeah. about free will. So, so I want to get into that stuff, but, but first just to talk about the overall architecture. I mean, a lot of these chapter titles would seem to boil down to saying almost like science is powerful. In other words, a lot of space, a lot of time, a lot of matter and energy, a lot of complexity. In fact, in our realm, uh, planet Earth, there's there's been increasing biological complexity uh, over the mm -hmm. last couple of billion years. And yet, as you say, very few ingredients, very few laws. So science has been able to, uh, for all the vastness we see and all the complexity, science is, seems to be able to boil it down to all consisting of basically relatively few laws operating on relatively few kinds of things, like fundamental, right. few fundamental particles, right? Is that? But lots of, yes, that's, that's, that's indeed, that's one of the central messages here. And as Einstein said, the most incomprehensible thing about the world is that it's so comprehensible that, yes, you can, you can, you can enunciate a, a kind of operating system that could be easily programmed into a computer without loss of, uh, Fidelity, so to say, you know, that, uh, that would be much shorter than the operating system that actually runs your computer. Mm -hmm. And that's the operating system of the world. Uh, and it's an adequate because there's, although there are very few ingredients, they exist in lots and lots of copies and, uh, and, uh, they have a very big stage on which to play and a lot of time uh to do their thing so uh so you can generate complexity out of deep simplicity deep simplicity so, wait, in the operating correct, system did deep i correctly understand the operating you? system but so you, uh but a lot of a lot of calculation so to speak a lot of iterations yeah so do you it, 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 you're saying or did i misunderstand you that if you if you put you know, what it takes to operate, to generate and operate the universe into code, into kind of computer code yes. as an algorithm. It would consume less information than is consumed by the operating system uh, for Windows. Much 10. less. Yeah. Much, much less. less. <laughs> right. Now, is that is that a, a tribute <laughs> well, to God or an indictment of uh, Microsoft? <laughs> well, it's a little bit of both, but I think it's mostly a tribute to God <laughs> that, that uh, uh, the, uh, well, it's, and it's also a tribute to uh, humans to have found this this operating system. Mm -hmm. uh, now, of course, the the flip side of the fact that the operating system can be boiled down to such a few. Uh, lines of code, so to speak, is that to 
have it work its magic it has to it has to operate on a big big computer and do do lots and lots of work so, but and and for us in science to understand the fundamental laws is made is really only the beginning of understanding the world because we, we have to solve the equations and also see what circumstances they're acting in because they have the character of telling you okay if if some if this is the situation at time t0 then now, then it tells you what happens at the next time also what happens at the previous time you have to start it somewhere mm-hmm. and, you know it's interesting you're at mit i hadn't thought of this before but um is ed fredkin still at him i mean he he would be uh, uh you, you know of ed fredkin or know him personally yes, I know. right oh yes 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 i, I wrote I, about I, him I, in my I, first I, book uh, three scientists and their gods and he had this idea yeah. of digital physics that really the way to yes. think about the universe is as an algorithm and and, and, yes, and I've, yeah i've talked about him i've talked with him quite a bit about that and uh i think it's it's it it is an algorithm, but it doesn't appear to be very digital. <laughs> yeah, that was the problem. Uh, if, is if, that if it gets uh, to be digital, it might, but there's no sign of it. And in fact, it's striking and kind of weird, actually, that so far the uh, idea of the continuum, which goes back to the ancient Greeks and. Mm-hmm. Euclid's axioms for dividing space up very fine is still basically the framework we use, even though we've discovered atoms and that that there's no way of making rulers in the same way or the the compasses, the things he worked with, uh, yet the intellectual framework of the continuum uh, has worked both for space and for time. And it's still something Euclid would recognize. Yeah. So the conventional wisdom among physicists is still that at its most fundamental level, the universe is analog, not digital, so to speak. In other words, there's a a continuity to well, to things, to quantities and so on that 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 you kind of can't ultimately break down. It's not discrete bits well, at the I, most fundamental level. Yeah. Uh, not in the present formulation of physics. I think a lot of us suspect that at, maybe at some deeper level, there's a digital structure, but at present, uh, uh, the, the continuum is very deeply embedded in the laws that actually work. Hmm. And if you want a digital structure, you've got a lot of explaining to do. Let's put it that way <laughs> to, re- right. to recover what we do know. <laughs> but you, but you, but you seem to not rule out uh, the possibility that digital, the digital physics view of the world will be in some sense vindicated eventually. Yes, or some some synthesis that has elements of what we would call digital and uh, uh, a- analog that. Uh, we require some imagination to even understand what it to imagine what it is, or there might be more than one way of looking at things. This this gets to the idea of complementarity. There can be different descriptions that are both valid and useful for answering different kinds of questions. I mean, after all, in physics as we have it today, in quantum theory, there are wave and particle distinctions, which previously to quantum theory, people would have thought it's impossible to reconcile those things. They're very different concepts, but in fact, there's a more general concept that, that uh, includes them both. Okay. Uh, 
Yeah, I wanted to. I, I did want to get pretty quickly. Oh, to... actually, I can actually I say a little bit more about sure. that, which is actually an, an emerging theme in modern physics in recent physics. In fact, is uh, the importance of topology. So uh, topology is a way of getting from continuous to discrete. So uh, if you, you have uh, spaces you know, or geometric objects that uh, have, say, a, num- a number of holes, that's the topological property, and the number of holes is discrete. So, so you can have objects that are continuous, and yet part of their description involves discreteness and Topology is full of that kind of thing. So you manufacture discreteness out of continuity. Okay, although the job for Ed Fredkin is to manufacture seeming continuity out of discreteness, right? (laughs) That's also, yes, that's That's harder. That's what he needs to do. (laughs) That's harder. Um, So let's, uh, let's talk about things like quantum physics, at least. Let's talk about how Mm. things start to seem weird as you get deeper and deeper. Because on the one hand, I think part of this conversation has made things sound kind of simple. You have these simple laws. uh, The complexity uh, gets generated out of them. Um, And yet it seems to me one lesson of modern physics is that when you look closely at the very fundamental level of things, or as fundamental as we can see, things start to seem weird. Uh, I mean, yes. you know, for example, you, we talk we talk about particles, yeah. and your your uh, among your accomplishments is to uh, to to come up with the term axion for a particle, and, and to to uh, I think uh, make fundamental contributions to our our reasons to believe that this particle mm-hmm. a exists, the axion, and b yes. might uh, <laughs> might explain the mystery of the the of dark matter, the fact that. Uh, Yes. There, there, the fact that we can safely conclude that there's a lot of stuff out there that we can't yet detect in terms of matter, right? Yes. That's yes. the dark matter. That's right. The, the dark matter is about six times as much by weight as normal matter, the matter right. that is made out of protons or ultimately quarks, gluons, electrons, photons. That's the subject of biology and chemistry and all kinds of engineering. <laughs> and, and, and you think this axion thing, if we uh, uh, showing for sure that it exists, may be part of solving the mystery of this kind of missing mass or yes. dark matter. Yes. In fact, I think uh, – I'm putting my money where my, my, my not my, my time when I'm out is. I'm spending a lot, a lot of my uh, research time these days trying to design antennas that will detect the uh, dark matter if it's axions by exploiting the predicted properties of axions to turn them into photons, which we can detect. Um, so, and, and that's a, a great enterprise. In fact, so, the the dark matter problem and the axion problem, although they had very different origins, very different motivations, one from cosmology, even very large things, one from uh, one from fundamental physics of the very small and, and basic interactions, uh, it turns out that when you take the implications of the axion theory and run it through the Big Bang, you have a very very plausible explanation of why there is dark matter and what it is and it's these axions so that's that's a big big uh item on the physics agenda these days is trying to prove it or not (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, because 
the although we can predict the properties of the axions if we know what their mass is we don't know what their mass is that makes the search very difficult and they interact very very weakly so uh it's a it's a challenge but we're rising to the challenge we're getting there there are okay. hundreds maybe thousands of phd physicists whose main occupation these days is looking for axions okay <laughs> well keep me posted if you find the dark matter i want to know um right. although we'll I, assume, <laughs> I assume i'll read about it in the newspapers yes so what i was going to say so axions it would be another what we call a particle we call them particles that's reassuring to those of us who like to have a very concrete view of reality. But, of course, when we look closely at particles, the question sometimes arises as to whether particles is really a fitting uh, description of them, right? I mean, uh, like, uh, yeah. I when, uh, when they found the Higgs boson, certainly, and I had uh, a conversation, it was actually one of your colleagues at Arizona State, it became clear to me that you know, particle, you know, he said, well, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a field. It's kind of like, it's like, you know, so the, um, the the seeming simplicity of of physics is at at some level, it it becomes seen as misleading, right? The seeming concreteness, you might say. It's simple, but unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. It's simple sort of in an absolute sense, which we alluded to before, which is that you can explain it without loss of content to a computer in a short program. So a computer can calculate all the, all the things that a physicist or God can calculate about the behavior of matter uh, in principle, which would take a long time, but you can do it. Uh, but the, 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 the price of that is that the language in which it's these basic principles are expressed is very, very different than the language of everyday life. Everyday life is meant to describe our, primarily our interaction with human-sized objects in a very restricted domain of experience at a certain, you know, earth, earthly kind of temperatures, earthly gravitational field and atmosphere. <coughs> Excuse me. Um. But uh, the way the micro world works, the basic operating principles, which we now think are operate on, on lots and lots of little things that you have to glue together to make these macroscopic objects, the basic laws look very different. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's you know analogous to understanding the uh, the different pieces that go into constructing a piano. That doesn't if you only have. Uh, understanding the chemistry of the wires and so forth is a very different thing than understanding what a piano is. And and you Mm -hmm. can, so, yeah, that, so it's a very unfamiliar domain. uh, And it takes some getting used to. (laughs) And, and so uh, uh, if you don't study the actual equations and that of course takes years of background and, and dedication, uh, you have to use metaphors and the metaphors are helpful, but, but, uh, and, and informative, but, but limited. Ultimately they, they, they run out. <laughs> well, do you, um, do you agree with Richard Feynman that I, I think the way he put it is, uh, he said, you know, 
people used to say nobody understands relativity. That was never true. There was always somebody who understood <laughs> relativity. But as I oh, recall, yeah. he said, he said, but nobody understands quantum physics. It's in some sense. Uh, well, it depends what you mean by understand. I think many people know how to work with it and get correct answers to <laughs> concrete questions. Right. Uh, but it's so strange that it's develop. It's difficult to develop uh, complete intuition about it. And I guess a, a unique thing about quantum mechanics as opposed to relativity, or it's certainly much more accentuated in quantum mechanics than relativity, is that you have to unlearn things. I mean, in relativity, you have to imagine things that are unfamiliar, if you're, and that things will look different, that you move very fast, and time gets squashed, and space gets squashed or expanded, and things like, or, you know, funny things like that, but they're... But, and we know how we know what time is. We know what space is. We know what length oh, is. Speak for intervals. yourself, but, but I'll but, trust but you when, on that. But, but when you come to quantum mechanics, it's it's a whole different level of strangeness. I mean, the the uh, the primary objects are wave functions that really have no direct analog in everyday experience, and probability is at the core of the theory in ways that's in ways that we don't ordinarily think about how matter is going to behave. So it's, it's a different world and takes quite a bit of getting used to. And, and no one understands it in the sense that no one, uh, I don't, I don't, well, I don't think very many people <laughs> if it's, uh, can confidently navigate that ground without checking up the equations and, uh, and sort of making sure you haven't slipped into some error, um, so that 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 in that sense, it's it's much more difficult to think intuitively about it. Now, I think that may change. Now we have tools of visualization that allow us to view more of the wave function at once and play with examples. And so, so it's partly that the you know quantum mechanics is only a century old. It takes them getting used to and and developing the appropriate concepts for uh, for this new world. People once had a very hard time understanding Newtonian physics. Yeah, <laughs> although it ultimately is kind of like a, a billiard table with which I'm, you know, which I can grasp intuitively. Whereas with quantum physics, right, there well, is... Well, right, in I, the modern world, of course, Newtonian physics is all around us. But at the time yeah. of Newton, <laughs> not so much. You didn't, when industrial processes were much rarer and people had a kind of view of still many people uh, were thought of the cosmos as a different thing than, than what's going on here at earth and different uh -huh. materials. And right. so, yeah, it took a lot of getting used to the idea of infinite space. I mean, people had a hell of a time understanding how, okay, if the, if the earth is moving, why don't we feel the winds? And why, why if the earth is mm -hmm. turning, as Copernicus uh, suggested, why don't, why don't we fall, spin off? <laughs> and it takes some, it took some getting used to. And that, that. So, well, okay. So let me, let me talk about a particular mm -hmm. seeming mm -hmm. violation of our intuition by quantum physics. And you, and you talk about quantum physics some in, uh, in, in, in the chapter on complementarity and, and in particular, about this this uh, this idea that you can't measure exactly the both the velocity and the location of say an electron uh, yes. that was Heisenberg's kind of point you have to choose um, and and the reason as I understood it was uh, that uh, 
you know, the, the act of measurement actually is kind of active. It affects the thing itself. And, and, yes. and, and if well, you, to find the, the location, like to you have to affect the velocity in a way that makes the subsequent measurement of velocity unreliable, right? Yeah. The, one, so, the way I would like to the way I like to put it is that the primary object in quantum mechanics is something called a wave function, but you can't access the wave function directly. Uh, you can only ask questions about it, and it gives you the answers to questions. And to, you need to process it in different ways to answer different kinds of questions, and you need to process it in one way in order to understand predictions about position, and you need to process it in a different way to understand predict to get predictions about velocity and you can't and those are uh uh incompatible ways of processing you know it's like mm-hmm. you take a block of material and you you can sculpt it one way or you can sculpt it another way but you can't do both with the same material without um okay. uh, or another another beautiful analogy which actually is close it gives really the spirit of the thing uh the actual processing you do is in a musical piece, you can analyze by melody or you can anal- analyze by harmony. And if you analyze by harmony, you have to take slices of it in time and hmm. discuss what's happening t- moment by moment and what, what are the harmonies. If you're discussing melody, then you, you process it globally over space. And maybe if there are several, you have to separate them and process each one separately. That's very analogous to what you do to wave functions. The, if you you the, if you want position, you you slice it. Uh, you take a direct measurement like 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 harmony. If if you want momentum, you have to kind of average over it. In and that's like more like analyzing the melody. Okay, but isn't there something? even weirder about the wave function. In other words, I I had thought that like um the idea was you know, if you ask like right now what's going on with this electron or at least with with, with and maybe with other particles. <laughs> the quantum physics answer is well, here is the wave function representing the probability uh, of of like where it is, say. So this wave function, there's like a 50% probability it's here. There's this, there's there's these probabilities that it's there and so on. And, and yeah. like, that's all we can yeah. tell you. And then you say, okay, but <laughs> there is, there is an answer, right? It's just that we don't know it. And, and, and I thought that yes. actually the answer from physics is no, I'm afraid that it's not even the case that there is an answer in principle to where this electron is until we measure it. And that's when the wave yeah, function the, the, collapses. Well, and that's when there even is an answer in principle. And before that, it's misleading to imagine the electron as being anywhere, let alone set aside the question of whether you can tell us where it is, right? Is, is that, am I misunderstanding yes. the weirdness here? No, I think you, you, you're you capturing uh, an important part of it, which is, again, that the primary description of the world is in terms of wave functions and uh the wave function tells you how to answer any uh any physically meaningful question so and but but uh you don't by any one experiment uh 
expose the whole wave function. You have to, you have to ask questions and that gives you a certain, and uh, that gives you some information about the wave function. And uh, one way to inquire is to make measurements, which will tell you where an electron is at a given time. Another is how fast it's moving at a given time. Uh, you could ask other kinds of questions too. Uh, and each of them corresponds to a different way of processing the wave function. Now, so if you only have one crack at it, you can't, uh, you can't learn about the whole wave function. But if you do many, many measurements, or of course, if you calculate, uh, then you can know the wave function. <laughs> so that's how, we, that's how we make predictions. And that's how we check that the theory is correct by doing many, many measurements on the same uh, object. You can reproduce, say, a hydrogen atom many, many times, and they all have the same properties, apparently. And, uh, and then you can check that the wave function is what you calculate uh, in great detail. But you can only do it sort of a little bit at a time. <laughs> so I, I think it, I think it's the Copenhagen right. interpretation of quantum physics that is sometimes characterized as shut up and calculate. In other words, you don't dwell on, <laughs> on, on don't dwell on the violation of our intuitions. It works as a practical matter. It allows us to predict things. Shut up and do it. Now, is that your orientation? Uh, 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 like, should I should uh, I see the subtext well, of what you've been saying? Is, is shut up is, and calculate. Uh, uh, well, I wouldn't put it quite so rudely, but <laughs> that's, the, that's uh, why it's subtext think, and not text. I think, but I, I would put it this way. I think uh, the theory tells you what it is, and that's true of any scientific theory. So uh, the theory tells you what kind of questions are legitimate, uh, what kind of questions are if the theory is right, what kind of questions, although they might make grammatical sense, don't really make sense as, as physical questions. Um, and, uh, and in quantum mechanics, we have to readjust our expectations. It's, it doesn't have, it doesn't make the same kind of predictions that a Newtonian physics does. And so it's not valid to think about particles with definite positions that move through space that are, that sort of have an independent existence of each other. Uh, in quantum mechanics, the, it, it's not particles, it's wave functions and the wave function entangles all the different particles. It's a different description and it's up to us to adjust to the theory. It's not up to the theory to adjust to our expectations. That, that, so that, that's my attitude is that by learning the theory, learning what the theory predicts in different circumstances and visualizing it using modern tools of visualization, working a lot of examples, uh, you can develop the intuition and come to terms with reality. But Nobody promised you a rose garden. It's quite different from everyday reality, <laughs> and 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 it's it's what it's actually quite wonderful. It's a very beautiful reality. It's just it, but it uh, it takes some getting used to. And let me let me ask. Uh, and it takes a lot of. I should say also, it takes a lot of work and a lot of imagination. And this is probably most of what most physicists do. Research physicists is relating that basic underlying fundamental description to the world we actually experience. It's not trivial at all. You have to do a lot of work to get from there to here. Yeah. No, I I have nothing but admiration for people who are capable of calculating. 
But since I'm not, uh, I can't shut up and calculate. So I'm going to persist. <laughs> I'm going to persist no, in this uh, line of. You don't have to shut up and you don't have to calculate. Because okay. <laughs> I, I refuse to do either. There's plenty to, there's plenty to enjoy without, um, uh, without. So let me, let me ask the question this way. Do you, there are some people, I think, who would say, until you measure the thing, you, you know, the act of measurement brings reality into into definite existence in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. That until you measure it, it isn't just that you don't know the answer, it's that the answer itself doesn't exist in definite form. It's reality is fuzzy and the and the act of measurement is bringing reality into more definite form. Do you think that's not a, the a correct way to think uh, about it? Or do you think I should shut up and calculate? No, it's not. Well, um, it, it's uh, it captures an important part of the picture. I think uh, it. Uh, I guess the thing I'm uncomfortable with is that it 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 makes it seem that the reality is fuzzy. The reality is not fuzzy. The reality is a wave function, which is perfectly definite. Uh, obeys definite equations. The problem is that we don't know it completely <laughs> and no one observation can, can well, uh, pin it all down. So uh, uh, exactly. So you, you have to, you have to uh, make inquiries of reality and gather information and you can make mistakes. You can run into trouble if you, uh, try to impose a, new, a Newtonian framework, or you know, a, a, impose classical physics on the on the quantum world, because the, those those concepts don't really apply. And so, uh, so yeah, so so if if by reality you mean classical reality, no, it doesn't exist until <laughs> until you make measurements. Uh, but but there is a reality that exists and and it's just that we can only we can only access a little bit of it at a time this way okay. i would put it i mean part of the answer you just gave might lead me to spe- suspect something which i think is not true which is that which is that you're you're buying into einstein's hidden variable notion that actually you know, it, it is it is a completely deterministic universe of the kind we were accustomed to thinking about before quantum physics. It's just that we don't quite understand. You know, there's a variable out there that once we understand it, you know, we we will no longer think of the reality as fuzzy and what we'll, 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 and so on, right? But you're not you're not yeah. saying that, right? No. Well, no. There's a there's a fine but but very basic distinction, which is that. Uh, my hidden variables <laughs> are, are ones that uh, uh, embody the quantum mechanical laws. So it's whereas Einstein was attempting to uh, uh, recover classical reality you know, uh, within uh, by in, by having a, a hidden structure. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so. Uh, I don't know how else to put it. Okay. So, so I guess the question is that, uh, yeah. So, uh, I guess, uh, probably it comes back 
I, I can't speak for Einstein, but but <laughs> I think probably it comes back to the kind of question you were asking, which is, could you, in principle, by making enough measurements fast enough and clever enough, completely determine the wave function, uh, and then then uh, then you would have restored the classical deterministic picture and. Einstein, I think, said, well, there are variables that are hidden to us, but if we could, act, if we're, and maybe in the future we'll be more clever, we can access them, and then we'll, un we'll understand that, that quantum, the quantum formalism was just incomplete and that uh, you needed to uh, be able to make these more, more refined, faster, more sensitive mm -hmm. measurements, and then everything is revealed. But uh, that view is uh is contra is not only intention it's contradictory to the to the consequences of quantum mechanics as we have it uh it's so it's not so there there are no hidden variables what's hidden is the wave function itself and the the and, and the reason it's hidden is not that uh there's structure that you you can access by more uh refined observations it's that uh one way one kind of observation precludes another kind of observation so you can't you can't gather all the necessary information at once that's what the theory says <laughs> okay i guess uh, one one final stab at the way this so it's hidden it's hidden in in both yeah. way, in both senses, both ways, it's hidden. But uh, the question is whether it could ever be unhidden. <laughs> and in standard quantum mechanics, uh, it can't be unhidden because it's uh, in the nature of the of the reality itself that uh, it, it, it diff answering different kinds of questions requires different kinds of processing that are mutually contradictory, like harmony and melody. And uh, that's okay. That's, well, that's different than, yeah, okay, I, I, I'll just, it's difficult stuff, I understand, conceptually, it it's very unusual, the, but I, I, I'll stop there, because I'm not, I'm not, and I guess the, the thing, I'm just going, <laughs> well, let me, let me just, one more characterization of, of the way it, it violates our intuitions is, you know, one characterization is, uh, well, there's true, there's true randomness according to quantum physics. And that doesn't sound like a, like a, a radical idea because we think of like coin flips as being random. On the other hand, mm. when we really think about coin flips clearly, we, we, we imagine that actually if you knew enough about the, the velocity of my thumb as it goes up, the air pressure and all this other stuff, yeah. you actually could predict. So it's not, it's not right. true randomness. It's just random in the sense that we can't yeah. predict the answer. And, yeah. and, and and what quantum physics tells us is is no at the most fundamental level there is true randomness you can predict that in the long run the heads and tails yeah. uh will will even out so to speak but but there's a truer kind of randomness at, at the yeah. in, at the basic in the ba basic fabric of reality than there is with a coin flip that that's one thing that's being said right and Yes, although it, not everyone would agree with that, and I at one time I didn't either. There's there's something called the many worlds interpretation. Oh right. And according to the many worlds interpretation, it's not that the result is truly random. What's happening is that if you make a measurement, uh, 
there are many, many worlds described by the wave function and you're, and you're picking out and you're determining which one you're in. <laughs> so, so, uh, the, yeah. the, the process is determined. It is just that, that there's a, a, you, there's an uncertainty about which universe you're actually in. That's gradually unfolding. Uh-huh. And I, I don't think that that interpretation contradicts the equations. It just seems, a little extravagant to me. It's kind of uh, uh, putting well, a lot of a lot of weight on on these uh, on these worlds whose reality is very very tenuous. And I think it's better just to deal with the probabilities and and deal with the with the world we actually well. E- even if there were many worlds, they would in effect be generated randomly, right? In a certain sense, yes, right? exactly. I mean, it's just like exactly, exactly. It's playing with words, I think, at some level, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would be a different universe if there were if there were all these different versions of me doing different things right now because exactly. I had branched off in a different yes. direction. That would be yes. different. Yeah, and well, but, and that what what the advocates of many worlds would say is that well, look at the wave function; it has all those things. No, I know they say like. The, <laughs> now, were you? Yes, would, it does. But if but the the actual wave function or the actual processing of the wave function that you need to do to describe experience gets rid of all that stuff and kind of narrows it down. So it's kind of metaphysical excess baggage, I think, that we don't really. Need it's a very tenuous kind of reality if you want to if you want to count those many worlds as real. Now you did your graduate work at Princeton. Frank Everett, who I think yeah. came up with many worlds, was not still at Princeton when you were there, was he? Or was he? Did you? I didn't know him. I don't okay. know if he was at Princeton. He certainly wasn't he, on the. He physics was. He, he was. He, he learned. Okay. He learned quantum physics at Princeton. Uh, oh yeah, I know. And, 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 a, a, cor- and a course there. with Robert Dickey, apparently. Uh, yeah, I can believe that. Yeah. <laughs> Dickie um, was a great man. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, okay. So this business of, you know, uh, this idea that when you measure reality comes into a more, uh, into a finite existence, which you didn't completely reject as I understand it. Um, no. th- there are different ways people interpret that. There are people who say, well, it's just the physical interaction with the measuring device that does it. And then there's these like far out interpretations. I don't think many physicists hold this, but you know, mm-hmm. the idea that mind is of the consciousness of the observer of the measurer is what is bringing reality into definite existence. I, I don't, I, that's not, that latter very, you know, kind of well, appealing exotic interpretation is not very widely respected uh, within physics, right? No, there's no, well, there's a very great physicist named Eugene Wigner who advocated that. And it's, it's often known as Wigner's friend that, mm-hmm. that somebody, somebody's mind has to, has to be doing uh, the, uh, the processing ultimately to tell you that, that something has happened. Uh, I think it's in the, it's kind of in the, the um, philosophical tradition of, uh, empirical idealists of, uh, mm-hmm. Bishop mm-hmm. Barclay and so forth. Right. The, uh, and, but it's not, let me put it this way. It's not reflected in any direct way in the laws of physics. People, when they do delicate experiments nowadays, 
have to make allowance for all kinds of things. They have to shield from stray radio fields. They have to make sure things don't shake. They have to, and, and this is a very delicate business. They have the, you know, they have to uh, exclude external fields, control flu- temperature fluctuations, all kinds of things. But one thing they've never had to worry about is what the guy next door is thinking. You know, there's never, never been any demonstration of a power of mind over matter that could not be explained very convincingly on the basis of uh, mind being uh, matter acting on on matter and mind being mm-hmm. a manifestation of matter an emergent right. emergent property of matter. So it could happen. Uh, it would be one of the greatest, maybe the greatest discovery of all time if someone could demonstrate something like that, but there's no sign of it. Uh, and uh, on, the, on the contrary, every, you know, the progress of understanding uh, other aspects of biology, of heredity and metabolism, and the emergence of artificial minds that for sure emerge from matter and computers, we, we design them, mm-hmm. uh, make it more and more plausible that mind is an emergent property of matter, at least to me. And, uh, and there's certainly no evidence in physics against that hypothesis. Okay, so I wanted to um, drill down on that a little. You do talk about that in the book and mm-hmm. the idea that uh, although we don't, we don't understand it yet. I think this is in your, in the mysteries remain chapter probably, but that, that, uh, that it looks like mind probably emerges from matter and we may someday have a clearer understanding of that. Now, now first of all, yes. um, by mind, can we think of just kind of consciousness like my subjective experience? Is that, is that what you mean by mind? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's of course, I, I'm not going to attempt a precise definition because it's that's that's a fool's fool's game because it's used in very different senses in different contexts like God, uh, but but uh, yeah, for I, we I think we know it when we see it when when we talk about minds. We know other people know what we're talking about. The uh, so we have we have experiences and and, and we have okay. an interior life and that's. And and it also has exterior manifestations. We talk to people and have models of what they're thinking, and so so that's what mind right. is. You know, that's what you. So uh, the idea there. So so uh, it sounds like you're what's called in philosophy an epiphenomenalist. The idea that consciousness is basically an epiphenomenon of material interaction. It, it kind of has the the relationship to the material world that a shadow has to my hand. Say the shadow of my hand. In other words. Well, my hand moves and influences and changes the shadow, but yes. the shadow doesn't ever change my hand, right? It's so it's like that's it's a one way causal relationship between matter and mind or well, consciousness. You can't take that too far. I mean, I can decide to raise my hand and do it. So, <laughs> well, can you though? I mean. <laughs> Yeah, I'm doing it. There it is. <laughs> well, so you yeah. say, but actually, in your book, you in in your book, I think you note that uh, you know that you talk a little about free will, and I well, a lot goes on unconsciously, right? But I right. can also, and, and, I can and, and also, there, there is there is a way of put, of making willful decisions if you think about it and yeah uh, but well i mean yeah, is there but, but, I, I mean you you cite this experiment well, there's where... a lot going on under the hood that we're not aware of of course and uh some of the things we think of as uh 
Oh, and I don't doubt that ultimately uh, that that when I there's a material correlate of me deciding to raise my hand that you could trace, and that would be an alternative description, a complementary description that we ordinarily would say, "Well, you decided to raise. I decided to raise my hand. I did." That the but so well so. All I'm saying here, well, not, not all. What I'm saying, what I, what I, I'm saying, and what I believe, and I think, is the working hypothesis of most scientists who work on the issue, is that there is, in principle, a description of uh, how that there's not how should I? There are not separate laws that in principle cannot be reduced or are not somehow emergent from uh, the basic laws of physics that, that govern matter, govern what brains are made out of, that, uh, that, that turn brains into mind. I think that, that, that's, uh, that, 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 that it's an emergent property of okay, the physical but it, but material. But brains get turned into mind. Mind doesn't get turned into brains. That's kind of what I'm asking. I mean, the causal... Right, exactly. Yes. Yeah. There's no, there's no separate role in the uh, fundamental description of the physical world for mind mm-hmm. that, as far as we can tell, we've been able to do without it. And, and, uh, right. that, and so, despite, you know, being sensitive to all kinds of things, uh, there's never been a need to bring in a separate kind of thought wave or emanation from, from mind, from minds or, uh, anything of the sort. So in other words, we, we think that, uh, we assume that if I get my hand too close to a fire and withdraw yeah. it suddenly, the way it feels to me is I felt the heat, the sensation of heat led me to yes. withdraw. But but you're saying we assume there is a completely adequate description at the sheerly physical level. There's the sensors at the end of my finger. Physical yeah. information flows, has causal effect and, and so on, that, that that's sufficient and that we yeah, don't. That's have, sufficient. It's, main, it's, it's certainly not the most uh, efficient description of what's happening. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, when you, as a practical matter, and maybe even as a matter of principle, when you're discussing uh, human behavior, what, what's right, what's wrong, and uh, uh, what, if you're trying to make predictions about how humans will behave, uh, you do use concepts of uh, of mind and free will, and and mm-hmm. uh, that, I mean. Uh, so it's not that those concepts don't exist and that, that not that they don't describe aspects of reality, but the working hypothesis, what, this is what Francis Crick called the astonishing hypothesis, uh, which he advocated, is that uh, essentially mind emerges from matter. It's not a separate thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The... Um... So you say when you said it's not the most efficient way, you're suggesting that actually the most efficient description is at the subjective level in a certain sense, because well, for certain kinds of questions, yes, for certain kinds of questions, you if if I want to, the way I put it in the book is that if I if I want to describe what happens to human being if they're at ground zero of a nuclear explosion. I don't have to talk about their personality or their mind or, mm-hmm. <laughs> or much of anything else except their physical uh, embodiment. 
if I want to uh, uh, interact socially with a person to understand what they're likely to do, you know, uh, judge them in a trial or love them or many, you know, many all these kinds of human relationships that that's uh, that use that it's important to use a completely different set of concepts. That, yeah. I mean, that's that, a funny thing I, I, I think about sometimes is that like, mm-hmm. like I really love, well, there are people I love, but also there are my dogs. And I have more time to think about that because there are more times when I'm like alone with my dog and like that's all I'm doing, right? I mean, it's like it's like <laughs> the thing about dogs – well, I won't go too far off on dogs. But what I've thought – what I've asked is like if I didn't – like if you could convince me that my dog had no subjective experience, would I love them in the same way? And I think the answer is no, right? I mean mm. which is – uh, weird. <laughs> I mean, okay, I mean, the, well, I rea- the seeming reality about this question. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm just but, saying the seeming but, but, reality but of subjective make, experience in others. We do. Yeah. We do make models of the things we interact with. And, uh, yes, we sympathize with them. We empathize with them. Uh, you know, I, I, I got very upset for instance, once when I, uh, dropped my computer and wrecked, wrecked its hard drive. Uh, Cause this was like part of me, part of my, you know, something I related to <laughs> and, and uh, the idea that I sort of felt like I had uh, uh, accidentally killed a friend or something, you know, at some level or a huh. pet or something uh, that the, uh, and so, yeah. And, and I think as artificial intelligence becomes a more, uh, human-like, the interactions with artificial intelligence becomes more like interactions with other humans, and then they they have their own their quirks, and they have rich personalities, uh, and you start to think of them in terms of a model of mind and uh, similar concepts to we to what we use in understanding humans or animals. Uh, that that the fact that they're made out of silicon and that you at some level somebody knows their wiring diagram i don't think should subtract from that experience at well, all but it does I, matter right whether it is like something to be the computer or the robot i mean one way one way the existence of consciousness uh, is sometimes put like by the philosopher thomas nagel yes. is is that to say someone has is consciousness has subjective experience is to say that it is like something to be them now uh, it could, for all yes. I know, it is like something to be my computer, right? I wouldn't, I, I mean, it could yes. be. I mean, I don't know for sure. I don't, I don't know for sure that it's, I don't know for sure that it's like something to be my dog. I don't know for sure it's not like something to be my computer. In I your mean, how view, do I know that, it could how do well I know be, that right? my neighbor is experiencing that? You know, how do I know what it's like to be my neighbor or my wife? Well, or, or even you know, that anything. it's like it. <laughs> right. Well, that's like anything. We don't really. We All we can do is kind of infer from what we observe uh, what the most parsimonious, reasonable explanation of the behavior is. And if it involves a model of mind with the motives and personality, uh, I'm not sure what ask what more you could ask for. That's, that's well, but no, but I think is, <laughs> but there is an answer to the question, right? Either it is like something to be me, or it isn't. I assert that it is. You have no way of knowing, but don't we agree that there is an answer to the question? I mean, subjective experience uh, is a real is a real thing. It, it's 
you know. Well, I'm sure that mine is, yes. And I, well, exactly. I'm willing to give you the benefit of the doubt. Well, that's <laughs> yes. my point, that it's real. We agree, right. we both agree yes. that there is at no. least one instantiation think, of subjective experience on the planet, and, it, and, 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 right. and that it is a I, fact that it is like something to be us. Yes. Well, I think there's a serious, there's a very serious question here, which is uh, that, I want one to me, a very major unfinished piece of business in fundamental science is sort of completing the loop where I can, there, there, I can make a model. I mean, I make, make a, a you know, sort of at least a caricature model. It would have to be vastly oversimplified, but a caricature model based on the, um, laws of physics as we know them starting from an appropriately low level to build up something which would call itself which which would which would have experience which would you know mm-hmm. if you ask what the 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 equations would tell you that this is experiencing things that it was thinking that it was experiencing things and what does that mean uh and I don't think we're quite there yet. It's a great problem. Uh, I want to find myself in the equations, and I haven't well, done it I, yet. <laughs> I don't see how the but, equations could ever tell you that. I mean, and this is, I was going to, well, as you said, only I know. No physical description <laughs> of my of my body and my behavior tells you for sure whether it's anything, whether it's like something to be me. There's only one person who can verify that it's like something to be me, Right. Yes, but it's much I, less what it's, it's like, like. Right, but it's like if you have a map that's unerringly accurate, and uh, if if you and if without without if you can look around at the territory and then look at the map and see that they agree, or you can look at the map and then and then it tells you what the territory is going to look like. If 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 that's an unfailing isomorphism if they they always agree mm-hmm. then that to me would be understanding so if i can see something in the equations that would ask answer questions about are you experiencing that would uh interact with the world in the ways that we think of as evidence for it having experience uh if i could sort of recognize myself i don't know how to put it really i'm not sure it's even possible but i i think so if i could find in the equation something that i would recognize as myself and my experience that that would uh, that would be that would uh, that would be quite something i that would be a real uh a real consummation i think and and i, I don't think impressed. we're there yet but i think i think we're getting there yeah. i would be more yeah. impressed than if you found the dark matter <laughs> it's harder it seems to be harder yeah. yeah and and that's uh i mean you know you you said that well uh we may someday understand how mind emerges from matter just as we've come to understand how metabolism and heredity emerge from you know uh fr- from from matter but it seems to me those are different things i mean metabolism well, is something well uh, would you be shocked would you be shocked if some some future artificial intelligence just tells you 
that's experiencing things and, and says, uh, "Gosh, what a wonderful, what a beautiful morning!" And uh, well, and we can we can build uh, so AI. To, that... It's so good to it's so good to be alive, and you know, and, and if you. Uh, and if you interact with it, you know, you know, maybe it, it, you fall well, in can, love with it, or it falls in love with you. And what, what you know, I can write. Some, <laughs> I don't know much about. Some, I don't know much about programming, take, right? but I can generate a program that will say that now. <laughs> you just say, "Oh yeah, you can say, okay, say it." That's not <laughs> but, that's not an issue. But but the question is, if you uh, change the circumstances, does it say it in a robust way? Well, yeah. Look, I, I again, I don't think that, we can rule but, out the idea that AI is conscious. But my point is like metabolism is something that more than one per, you know, is publicly observable. My metabolism, it's just a higher level description of a physical process. And any number of scientists can gather around me and all observe it, but no Mm -hmm. scientist can observe my consciousness. And, and and it seems to me consciousness is just Uh, fundamentally different. It is not publicly observable in and of itself. Now, we can observe people's reports about their consciousness. They say, I'm feeling hot. And you you can take them at their word, but you are not yeah. observing their feeling of hotness. And it just seems to me subjective experience is in a fundamentally different category from everything else science tries to study in the sense that it doesn't have that one fundamental thing that things have to have to be part of scientific study, uh. which is that they are publicly observable. So you can – you can test a hypothesis and everyone can gather around and look at the test and see what happens, right? Well, there are things you could test. about. I don't know what the explanation is going to look like in detail, but uh, you could have a theory of consciousness that says, okay, if I give you this drug, then you're going to experience the world in a different way. And if I tweak that part of your brain, you're going to feel this perturbation to your consciousness and then if you if you gather enough pieces of information you can get you can reconstruct the, you know by observable things you can reconstruct a pretty convincing picture of, of the whole so I, I i think you really have to use your imagination to uh think about what 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 it would mean to explain consciousness I, yeah uh, yeah it's yeah I, i'm just I'm just saying in the end, you'd be reliant on the report of the person and not have direct access to the consciousness. But that's. Yes, uh, but, but it couldn't be, it wouldn't be one, it wouldn't be one person. It would be, you know, any number of people. Yeah, and which you, helps. If they're mutually consistent, you know, there are, you know, there are issues. I mean, for instance, there's a, let's make this, let's bring this down to earth a little bit. There's a philosophical debate whether what I call red is the same as what you call mm-hmm. red. Do I have the same experience of red as you do? Uh, and uh, I don't know what that means exactly, but you can ask whether people are consistent in what they call red or in their color distinctions. And uh, in, in you can perturb the situations in different ways, the lighting conditions or uh, whatever. And, uh, you can you can explore different states of consciousness. Maybe red, if you if you uh, are taking LSD, looks green, or so it looks. I don't know, but but the, the uh, uh, and if all those reports are mutually consistent, then uh, you have to ask, what would it even mean to say that my red is different from your red? Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know what it means. I mean, it's, it's so it's one of those questions which. 20th century philosophy alerted us to has 
or or even Jungian philosophy. It's it's one of those questions that seems to say some, mean something, but actually doesn't when you come down to it. That uh, and. Yeah, uh, those questions are very hard to answer. <laughs> no, I agree. I, 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 in a way, I think that highlights the distinctiveness of, of uh, consciousness as a phenomenon. The, um, but, uh, but I certainly agree that we can make reasonable inferences about the fact that certain physical processes do cause certain states of mind just based on the number of people who report basically the same thing. If we like hit yeah. them on the hand with a hammer or something, right? It's yes, like exactly. It's pretty right. clear. The, so I'm yes. not denying that. I, 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 but but so so as for free will, which we alluded to, you're 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 happy to settle for the complementarity. It sounds like it's like sometimes it makes yes. sense to think I I have free will, and then on the other hand, you could you know when I'm in the mode of thinking of myself as this robotic physical thing, I might have doubts, but. That's when I'm being a scientist and the, 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 when I'm being me, uh, I'm kind of thinking of just me conducting my life. I, <laughs> I might be thinking of, uh, free will. It, it, does that capture your, your, your view that we just have to sometimes <laughs> settle that for seemingly well, contradictory? Well, I, yeah. I don't think it's a matter of settling. I mean, I think it's a matter of addition, not, uh, not, uh, how should I say, not uh, dumbing down necessarily. It's, mm -hmm. it's a matter of organizing the material in different ways. Uh, so that's, so that's why I say complementarity is mind expanding, not, not that it's a compromise or it's, it's very important to have intermediate, uh, to have intermediate concepts or constructions or emergent concepts is a better word that uh, have only a tenuous relationship to the fundamentals of physics and the, uh, and that, that for many reasons, I mean, what there's a, there's a basic reason within the nature of physical law itself, which is that uh, when you, when you look at anything other than the simplest situations, the solutions to the equations depend very delicately on, on the initial conditions. So you can't actually calculate in practice how a complex system behaves. This is famous as chaos theory, but it's, it's in quantum mechanics, it's exacerbated because you don't know the initial conditions at all because really because of the wave function limitations we talked about earlier. Uh, but then there's also a practical thing which is almost is so quantitatively significant that it becomes qualitative which is that if we're dealing with complicated objects that contain many many elementary particles or many, many elementary objects uh it's it there's the properties that are stable that are useful to discuss the behavior of this object uh are, are quite different and maybe hard to identify. It was a real triumph of physical uh, investigation to establish the concept of temperature, for instance, or the concept of pressure. These, uh, the, and those are extremely useful. And I think uh, uh, concepts that are used in psychology are in that same category, at a more elevated level, the, the concepts of... Uh, personality and, and uh, free will, 
things, things mm-hmm. of that sort. Yeah. So it's, so it's not, it's, how should I say? It doesn't demean from the concept of temperature that it has a molecular correlate. Uh, and it doesn't, uh, and the meta, and studying individual elementary fundamental laws doesn't have the concept of temperature. Uh, so they're different important ways of processing the material of our experience and the reality. And mm-hmm. we, we need them both. And it's, it's marvelous that both are useful and uh, both can be both answer important questions. Okay. The, um, and, and you apply, excuse me, you apply complementarity to uh, just everyday life. I mean, you talk about uh, yeah. the relation having both humility and self-respect for example and, and i think if you said to me the most important of all yes <laughs> which, and and if you if you if you call it if you talk about self-esteem the the paradox might seem even sharper in a way right between humility and but but any the, the point is that on the one hand having a high regard for yourself uh <laughs> and on the other hand, not not conveying that publicly. I don't know. What, how would you? How would you? Uh, well, okay. that's one version of it. That's not exactly what yours, I have. Yours mind. is less cynical. <laughs> that, your complementarity yeah. is less cynical than that. Sounded, I know. It's less. I mean, I was thinking, of course, uh, you know, in the context of the book, I was really thinking about kind of the cosmic idea that that we're very small compared to the universe, but on the other hand we contain a lot of complexity in elementary objects. So we're both small in one sense and large on another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that plays out also in time where we live a very short time on this time scale of the, uh, the cosmic times, the universe. Uh, but we contain, we have enough time for lots of complicated thoughts and lots of experiences mm-hmm. and, and so on. And, and there are quite a few other examples of that kind. The, the, um, so at the level of fundamentals, I think you, we, humility is very much appropriate. Uh, uh, there's a huge world out there, but, but uh, self-respect is also appropriate because, we are marvelously complicated mm-hmm. and capable of very interesting experiences and behaviors. So they, and uh, we can, we can rit- live rich lives and, and uh, enhance other people's lives. So, so mm-hmm. there's lot, lots of reason for self-respect too. Yeah. And we're, and we're capable of experience period, let alone how rich it is. I mean, so far as we know, these vast, uh, yes. you know, the sun, it's much bigger than me, but so far as I know, it's not like anything to be the sun could be, I don't know, but there, there, are, there are philosophers. There is this panpsychism view that it is like a little something to be any physical thing, but in any event, I, no, I take your point. Yeah, I, I don't, yeah, that again, I think that kind of thing, very quickly devolves into playing with words and, and unless I, you can't make, you can't, you can't make the discussion more precise than the words you phrase it in. And yeah, I don't, yeah. So, right. Yeah. You, you, you talk about a hard hypothesis to test uh, that, that it's like something to be the sun. Um, the, uh, you mentioned your Catholic upbringing, uh, 
a couple of times or more, more than a couple of times probably in the book. But, but one thing you say is that it led you to think cosmically and look for hidden meanings. Yeah, um, it really did. <laughs> so, and, so you think you would not be a physicist without it? Well, I don't know, but I, I would be a different person and probably a different physicist. Yeah. How, how did, in what <laughs> sense did you, did it lead you to look for hidden meanings? I mean, when, I guess I would think that the, the think cosmically part might, to me, you know, religious upbringing makes you think in terms of cosmic purpose, first of all, uh, which is not, not part of well, the, the generic scientific worldview. No, um, well, I, I, uh, I rebelled. I mean, I guess I guess eventually I I uh, right. uh, 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 turned away from from the detailed dogmas, of, uh, and so I I look. I think I took away some of the valuable spirit from from that experience. But uh, but yes, it needs the details. Certainly not very big details. Certainly need correction in in, in the light of what we've learned. Uh, in recent centuries. What about yeah. the hidden meanings part? How did it lead you to look for hidden meanings? Well, I mean, in 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 the, the liturgy, in uh, the catechism, and so forth, there, there's a lot of uh, symbolism. You know, mm-hmm. starting with the Eucharist is maybe the most prof- profound. This is supposed to be the body and blood of of, of the Savior, and uh, the, so and it doesn't look like that for sure. <laughs> it, doesn't, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't taste like that, and yet you. Uh, uh, so it's it. The meaning is hidden, uh, and that to me is kind of a wonderful thing. I also liked I liked magic and uh, the idea that uh, that by understanding things deeper you would understand more and also maybe acquire power over it. Those, I, those ideas I found extremely attractive and still do. I mean, that's that, you know, when, uh, when I am confronted with a puzzle or some, some toy or machine that I don't understand, I, I have an irresistible urge to try to figure it out. <laughs> that, uh, okay. The, um, here's, here's a, Another piece of religious language from your uh, from your book. In studying how the world works, we are studying how God works and thereby learning what God is. Um, mm. Now, Einstein used the term God, but it's thought that, you know, he meant it as a stand in for something yes. other than than God. Is it, well, what, what, what do God you mean? Is a ver- God is a, as you know, is an extremely uh, flexible term and people have. Uh, hung very, very different systems around that term. So, uh, uh, and I'm kind of defining my own interpretation there, which has significant amounts in common with other usages, usages, but is, it, it is what it is, which is that, uh, what I mean by God is, uh, Reality, <laughs> physical reality, which I think is physical reality. And uh, that has many f- extraordinary features that take enormous imagination and dedication and uh, uh, 
did I say imagination? Yes, definitely imagination to uh, to uh, to to comprehend, and and uh, that and it's wonderful. I mean, it, 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 and we uh, we've discussed some of the aspects of that to find myself in the equations to to understand how from this extraordinarily simple or profoundly simple. Uh, uh, operating system you unfold the rich existence that we see around us and the fact that it works on principles that we can largely understand uh this it, it has something in common with the idea that there's a lawgiver that uh that there's a a a, 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 a a meaning to the, to what's going on. There's a, there's a purpose. It's not a human purpose, but it's uh, embodying the laws. You know, that's mm-hmm. uh, so that that's a kind of purpose. And who, who do we to say what God's purpose should be? And that, that's, yeah. So we find out, we find yeah. out. By, I mean, all by, the, uh, by, <laughs> you, 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 you compared the laws of the universe to a kind of algorithm to code and, all the other, all the other algorithms we're aware of have purposes. So who knows? <laughs> right? they, yeah. they, don't, they don't just. Uh, yeah. Well. They, yeah. I mean. Well. Okay. I mean. Yeah. I mean, there are speculations about the world being a simulation. For I mean, right. Uh, What's your take on is, that? Which uh, <laughs> I was about to say that it's kind of it's kind of a hidden form of intelligent design. I mean, that's what it, it is. Intelligent design. <laughs> so there was a design that somebody designed. And I, it, it seems to me very far fetched given the laws, the character of the laws that we know it. I mean, let me put it this way. If it's a piece of programming, it's a very unintuitive, seemingly, seemingly poorly devised mm. piece of software because it has so much hidden structure that's useless and very complicated. What, why huh. would you do things that way? And it's so constrained. If you were programming, you could do so many, you could have action at a distance. You could, you could have people looping back in time. You have, you have all kinds mm. of things, which, you know, if you look at computer games, all kinds of things happen that are fun and imaginative that don't happen in reality. And so, so why wouldn't you do that? Uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, and, and as I said, the laws use the continuum, which is very, very awkward for programming. And so, so okay, uh-huh. so it just, just doesn't look that way at all to me. Uh, well, Elon Musk said that, it's <laughs> overwhelmingly likely that we're living in a simulation and his, his stock is well, doing much better than mine. So I, I, I defer to his. <laughs> well, I defer to he's, his. He's obviously very good at selling his opinions, but I, <laughs> I don't buy this one at um, all. The, uh, I also don't buy the idea of migrating to Mars, by the way. But, oh, you uh, don't? Oh, well, that's it. <laughs> no. Well, we should, yeah, we should get you and Elon on, uh, <laughs> together. Uh, the the um, couple of final questions. One, one just occurred to me. You know, we talked about the universe as a kind of an algorithm. Um, natural selection can also be thought of as an algorithm, right? Uh, you know, you generate variation and, and you know, and yeah, step, well, step one, right. two, three, Again, and I mean, biological yeah, complexity I emerges. I wouldn't want to, uh, yeah, if, yeah, I, I mean, I'm willing to, uh, and I don't insist on on a strict definitions here, but in a, in a broad sense, yes, you, yeah. I know what you're saying when you say it's an algorithm. Yes. Well, what what, what I was going to ask was just like, 
So, so the the algorithm that kind of generated the universe seems to have inherent in it the generation of a certain kind of complexity. I mean, the universe itself, leave aside life, the universe itself has complexity. The complexity emerges from the Big Bang. And then separately, on Earth, at least, and maybe mm-hmm. on other planets, but there's this kind yes. of other kind of algorithm that generates a, a somewhat different kind of complexity, but the complexity yes. does tend to grow. But there seems to be a gap in our understanding. We, in other words, we don't know how the algorithm of natural selection got started. There are people who think uh, that the gap isn't so big, that in a way inherent in the complexifying tendencies of prebiotic, of just you know plain vanilla physical yes. structure is yes. the likelihood of, of biological yes. structure emerging. What it, do, you, do you think this is this huge gap we don't – we just – don't get, or do you think maybe it's not such a big gap? I well, I think it. Well, this is. I'm not an expert in this, and it gets very technical. But the fact that it does get quite technical and specific to me is a sign that it's not an, an unbridgeable gap. But there, there's there's a large literature that has uh, a lot of non-trivial insights like uh, self-repairing RNA, the possibility of an RNA world, RNAs that are enzymes, possibility of using clays as a substrate for origin of life. There are lots of ideas about the origins of life that are more or less plausible. It's hard to know which, if any of them, is is correct or that it's very difficult to reconstruct that history. There are very few artifacts of it left. Uh, But... And, and I hope that that a more uh, rich and concrete understanding will emerge from future investigations. I mean, to me, the future of the the the, the proof of the pudding is that uh, if you think you understand the origin of life, well, do it again. <laughs> do it again. You know, and and, and people have various approximations to that, but no one's really uh, done it in in a convincing way. But but. I don't see any problem of principle. It's just getting the right ingredients. And in I think uh, the, and one thing you should remember is that, that it's very difficult to uh, grasp intuitively is just how slow and halting a process evolution has been. Mm-hmm. It took, it's not as if, uh, the molecules came together and suddenly there were people discussing molecular biology. Uh, it was, uh, well, the most primitive forms of life actually probably did emerge fairly quickly, but they're just glorified chemistry, really. They're not, uh, the uh, emergence of multicellular life, which is what we ordinarily think of as complex life, was a quite a recent development in the uh, Comparatively, I think uh, less than a billion years ago. So it took the, the bulk of life on Earth has been sort of glorified chemistry and gradually mm-hmm. building up the machinery of metabolism and so forth. And then uh, multicellular life is kind of a gloss on that. <laughs> that uh, and 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 of course, as we get closer to today, the uh, the genetic records and uh, the paleontological records get richer and we can see how it worked and there's no uh, 
there doesn't seem to be anything that gets beyond the framework of uh, physical law that we infer from elsewhere. It seems seems to be perfectly fine. Uh, we'll also, in the future, I hope, we'll get more information from studying life on other planets, uh, exoplanets, probably, well, maybe within the solar system, but but uh, but certainly exoplanets, and we will we'll find out. I suspect that life is fairly widespread in the universe. Mm-hmm. Maybe not intelligent life, though, because here on Earth, intelligent life, and at least at the level of human intelligence. Only yeah. emerged very, very, very recently, and and was very contingent. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I think it was uh, Bertrand Russell who said, "If the if the purpose of evolution was to create intelligent life, how come it took so long to produce so little?" Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, right. that, that kind of leads that kind of leads to my final question. Okay. Uh, kind of in, in a sense, like in a way, the question is, "How smart are we?" What I mean is, you know, you alluded earlier to. I, th- I think you said, you know, in a way, it's not surprising that quantum physics doesn't make sense because we didn't evolve to understand quantum physics. We evolved to understand how to right. find food and stuff like that. And in your book, you talk about, you know, uh, animals that see the world in a very different way than we do. Bats, for example, with echolocation. Yes. I, I guess one I- I'm wondering what your view is on how fundamental the limits on our understanding are by virtue of the very limited uh, criteria for our design, so to speak. In other words, the fact that evolution favors Mm -hmm. our being good at, in a certain sense, a very limited and mundane uh, set of things. So do you you imagine, in other words, that there are just, and you know, we already have, quantum physics is kind of an intimation of this, the way it just doesn't match up readily with our intuitions. It suggests that with quantum physics, we are starting to reach a depth uh, where our minds may well, in some sense not be up to the challenge. I, I guess my question is, I, I know you kind of disagree with that because you think I should shut up and count. Well, no, I, I probably don't disagree as much as you might think, but, but go ahead and pose Well, it I was just going to say, do you, do you imagine that there are really fundamental depths of reality kind of out there that we'll just never be able to plumb? We'll never have a clue. Uh, yeah, I do. I do think that. <laughs> uh, but let me let me let me uh, put it in a broader context. A, one thing that emerged from 20th century understanding of uh, computation and computer science is the idea that there's such a thing as a kind of universal computer, a universal Turing mm-hmm. machine, it's called, mm-hmm. that That in principle, if you give it long enough, can do any computation. Uh, and if you believe, and so it could do the computations that go on in the human brain, for instance, with, if you give it long enough and it had a big enough Turing machine, you could do it. Uh, and vice versa, a human brain, if you give it long enough and it had a long enough a big enough memory and and enough tape could could uh, do any to could understand anything that's understandable in 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 a, in a uh, with a very plausible meaning of what understandable means understandable to an Turing machine uh, the uh, that but the 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 real criterion though is not that I don't think uh, but in but uh, more 
little more down to earth, which is that humans don't have unlimited memory. They don't have time to make unlimited numbers of calculations. Uh, a lot of what we do is in, is based on getting information from the external world and our senses are quite limited. Uh, but we are, we can, we are Turing machines. We can, uh, uh, well, not, not in, uh, up to this technical thing of not having unlimited memory, but we have large memory. We can use machines to enhance it. So we, in principle, we can understand anything, but in practice, uh, the, uh, um, we need help and there are, um, and that's, that's already manifesting itself in many ways when, uh, in, uh, the theory of the strong action, for instance, which we talked about, uh, it's very difficult to understand how quarks and gluons behave when you, uh, let them interact at low energies to make protons and neutrons and so forth. And uh, people have tried to make what they called analytic models, where you uh, uh, put it in it, which comes down to really putting in a, in a humanly digestible form using relatively small numbers of variables and small numbers of, of equations that in, so you can picture their behavior. But that hasn't worked very well. What's really worked is handing over the calculations to computers that just by brute force give you answers. And you're not supposed to ask how, you know, what does it mean? You just you get the answer. <laughs> and, then, uh, and that, I think, also is happening with protein folding. Recently, there was a breakthrough where a deep neural network did better than any human algorithm, even though the human, the, the human designed algorithms were also using computers, of course. But so, uh, but we can, but the, the good news is that we, uh, you know, those are our machines and we, we can partner with them. We can expand our minds by uh, allowing our, uh, collaborating with our silicon friends. And similarly, in the case of uh, sensory apparatus, yes, we don't, we don't have uh, echolocation like bats, but we can use ultrasound and we do use ultrasound to do clever things like looking inside uh, wombs to, 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 to see how babies look uh, that the, uh, and many other things. So, so uh, the good news is that because by understanding the world better, uh, we can expand our power over it and, and our ability to experience of it, it. And it's kind of a virtuous cycle of, insight and understanding and enhanced power that uh, I don't think we should be discouraged by the fact that we start, we start with limitations, we can overcome them. And, and uh, so, yeah, I, I don't think there's, let me put it, I put it, put it more briefly and more poetically is that I don't think there's any limit to our imagination Uh if we use, if we're willing to get help and <laughs> expand it uh, by using uh, all, all the machinery that's available mm -hmm. to us. Yeah. And we'll get credit for having built the things that give us the help, I guess, even if we yeah. do need the help. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that's reassuring. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Frank. Uh, <laughs> it's always fun to talk to you. Uh, one reason is, you know, I don't know if you noticed this, but you, you, um, uh, you laugh a lot. 
in conversation. And I, I, I take that to be uh, a sign that you take a kind of a delight in life and in your in your work that I think comes through. I do. I do. And uh, it's also a gift from my mother, who was an extremely happy person. Somehow. She, she <laughs> so, was a prolific laugher. Yes. <laughs> The the uh, but it comes yes, from your book laugher, too. A laugher and a a laugher and a singer. She was. Yes. Oh, really? That's right. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, congratulations on having had her as a mother. Uh, <laughs> right. It certainly worked out. Your the circumstances of your birth have have, have uh, wound up uh, being fortuitous. Um, the oh, uh, <laughs> and, and and your delight in uh, in in. in Life and, and reality comes through in your book, so I really recommend it. Uh, it's called Fundamentals, Ten Keys to Reality by Frank Wilczek. And thanks so much for uh, taking the time. This was a lot of fun. Thank, th- yeah, thank you very much, and uh, greetings to Princeton. Yeah, well, we, 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 uh, <laughs> we, return, we return those greetings.